Now, do you ever tell pointless stories? My granddad Harry was uh, the master at telling pointless stories. Uh, he was always doing it. He'd sort of bump into random people uh, in the street, and you know, five minutes later, he'd be telling them all about his life story. Uh, he'd just be uh, telling them about his uh, time growing up, all the different stories he used to tell. I could virtually tell you some of them word for word. I heard them so many times. You know, his his childhood in Bradford, stories of his various careers, his far-flung holidays, but mostly in Benidorm, it must be said. But he was a great storyteller. Uh, He could tell stories until the cows came home. And the stories sometimes with my granddad Harry would just run one into another. So, you know, he'd sort of start telling one story and then partway through he'd get a bit distracted and he'd start telling another story. And there were a few times when I sat with him and it it went in a big loop. So he he started with one story and got to the next one. That reminds me of this other story. and And eventually got back to his first story and started the loop all over again. So he had to sort of say, you've just told me this one. Uh, But he could really tell pointless stories of my granddad. He was brilliant at doing it. But Jesus never told a pointless story. Uh, And the one that we have before us this morning is not a pointless story. It's actually a really pointed story, aimed firmly at the Pharisees, who we found out last week were lovers of money. We saw that in verse uh, 14. And remember that the big context for this passage is actually that uh, they're questioning Jesus' company of undesirable. So Luke 15, uh, 1 to 2, just over the page. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So they're grumbling at the fact that he's spending his time with undesirables. Well, here Jesus tells them a story of a lover of money and an undesirable. And as with the other parables, Jesus' characters are going to sound suspiciously like those around him at the time, as he aims this story, as he points this story at the Pharisees. So the first thing we have is a lover of money and an undesirable. Let me read to you those verses again, 19 uh, to 21, just 19 for now. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and who feasted sumptuously every day. The first thing we see in our story is a lover of money. This is a rich man. And he's given no name. Traditionally, we call him Dives, which is actually just uh, Latin for rich man. So we really don't know uh, what his name is. But him being nameless sort of gives it the feel that it could be anybody, couldn't it? Uh, he's not some specific person. It could just be anybody. And we're only given two details about him. The first is that he's dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, purple in those days was the most expensive colour to produce. If you're wearing purple this morning, you wouldn't be able to do in the old world generally because it was really expensive. The only way that they knew to make it was from a rare species of purple fish that sort of looked a bit like a mussel. And for that reason, it was often just a uh, reserve of royalty. Only royalty could really afford to wear purple. So wearing purple was a status symbol. It'd be like wearing an ultra-expensive designer label. I must have had to Google these to find out. But, uh, Burberry, Chanel, Prada, Gucci, same sort of equivalent, wearing those sort of things as, as a status symbol. So as we meet him, he's not just rich, he's flaunting his wealth. He's showing everybody that he's rich. And the fine linen that it mentions there was hard to come by as well, worn underneath. It's even sort of saying his undergarments are designer. He's really rich and he's not afraid to show it. The second thing we're told about him is that he feasted sumptuously every day. 
Now, feasting sumptuously was not unheard of in these days. Important people liked to throw feasts to show off their wealth to their friends and family. But this man does it every day. That was virtually unheard of apart from kings and those of very, very significant means. And again, it's a show of his great wealth. He's not just wealthy, he's spending his money on extravagance. He wants people to know just how wealthy he is. Well, what a contrast to the man who follows the undesirable. Have a look at verses 20 and 21. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Lazarus here is a poor man, a beggar, covered not with purple and fine linen, but with sores and boils, not fed with daily feasts, instead just longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Think about that for a second, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. This is the days before carpets. This is the day when you ate and mud was on the floor. The only thing I could possibly think of that was close to getting this desperate would be, imagine being so hungry that you go to McDonald's. Not, not, don't stop there. They're so hungry that you go to McDonald's and you eat what's on the floor that people have left behind. This man is so desperate that that's what he wants to do. He wants to eat the food that's fallen from the table. It's a bit of a reminder, isn't it, of the prodigal son in the chapter before who, who wanted to eat the, what the pigs were eating. But seemingly this man has no father, caring father to care for him. No father to come back to. He doesn't even get the opportunity to eat what falls from the table. The rich man doesn't even let him past his gate. And the boils that he had there would exclude him from the temple. No skin diseases allowed. He was probably picked on, castigated for having boils as a sign of God's judgment. If you remember, one of the plagues of Egypt was boils. Same word in Greek. And to make things worse, wild dogs came and licked his sores. It's not a cute picture of sort of, you know, a little puppy coming up. It's a terrifying picture of a man so helpless that he doesn't even fend off the animals who come and risk infecting his wounds. He seems utterly helpless, doesn't he? But his name speaks otherwise. Because he does have a name when you compare him with the other guy who doesn't have a name, doesn't he? Lazarus means God is my helper. Perhaps that's the reason why we're given his name. And a clue to really what it's all about. Though people are of no help to him, God is his helper. God is sustaining him. God is looking after him. Well, it's not hard to draw the lines, is it? The rich man sounds suspiciously like the Pharisees, the lovers, lovers of money, who love to be seen, who love to put on a show, as we heard about earlier. People who made a big deal out of keeping the letter of the law, but ignored the poor. And we have Lazarus, the outcast, the undesirable, ignored by men, but loved by God. Just like the sinners that Jesus is devoting his time to. From the picture Jesus paints... It would seem like the Pharisees are getting away with it, wouldn't it? It seems like they are able to do what they like. This whole thing seems terribly unfair until both men die. And that brings us to our second point, the bosom of Abraham and the fire of hell. Have a look at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Lazarus dies 
and is carried by angels to Abraham's side or, or bosom. As we move into this part of the story, we need to remember that this is a story. It's going to be tempting to try and get some juicy details from this about what heaven will be like. But we have to bear in mind that this is just a parable. Jesus' story here is not there to satisfy our curiosity. It's there to teach us some important home truths. So we will refer to some of the details as we look at what happens, but we'll need to tread carefully. So why is heaven here called Abraham's side or bosom? Well, Abraham was the great father of the Jewish nation and the father to all believers. There's a wonderful picture now of this one who had no father to go back to being comforted by a father, comforting his son, or or great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, as he actually would have been. The older translations have bosom. Uh, Now, the new translations don't use that because it tends to make some people giggle. But it's the idea of a father and a child. It's that embrace that you have. The child at peace with his father, up against his chest, up against his breast. Now, is this supposed to be literal? Well, no. Abraham is one man, isn't he? He cannot be there in heaven embracing absolutely everybody, can he? For a start off, Abraham in heaven would not have a bosom, would he, to rest on. He wouldn't have arms to put round him. Uh, because we haven't got our resurrection bodies when we're in heaven, as it's talking about here. The picture is clearly before the general resurrection at the end, um, so the language must be figurative. But what it's trying to show you by that language is that there is peace, there is rest, there is comfort offered here. Abraham says as much in verse 25, doesn't he? But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. So it's a picture of comfort, a comfortable rest for this poor man who's lived with God alone as his helper, being rested now from his hard life. Well, again, the contrast could not be more stark with the rich man's destination, the fire of hell. Have a look at verses 22 to 26. Partway through 22, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us, you, uh, between you and I, our great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to here. The rich man here, note, is buried. Something that we're not told about Lazarus. You see, the rich man's death even as the show of wealth, getting a proper burial where we're just not told what happened to Lazarus. He's in Hades. Now, Hades is a neutral term in Greek, meaning place of the dead, similar to Sheol in the Old Testament in Hebrew. But clearly here, the the phrase has a hellish bent, doesn't it? Because the rich man is here in a place of torment, a place of agony and anguish, a place of fire and of flame. So even though the word that's used is quite neutral, the description of it makes it quite clear what's happening. 
doesn't it? This is not a neutral waiting room for the dead. This is a place of torture for the wicked. Now, should we take the flames literally? Well, elsewhere, it's referred to as a place of utter darkness. That would seem to be incompatible, wouldn't it? If you've got flames, you don't tend to have darkness. But whether they're literal flames or not, it's clear from the passage that it is a place of agony, a place of punishment with the worst aspects of earthly punishments. The agony of flame and the loneliness and fear of utter darkness. That the Bible might use figurative language to describe it does not lessen the horror of the place. It heightens it, if anything. These are images just trying to grasp at the horrific nature of a place that we normally call hell. It's not a 24-7 party. It's not populated by little red devils with horns and pitchforks. It's utter desolation. It's utter horror. And it's the current destination for billions on our planet. If that doesn't make us want to warn our fellow human beings, I don't know what will. It certainly will prompt the rich man later to do that. Want to warn people, but we'll come to that a bit later on. But the rich man ends up in hell. And he is in agony. And he sees Lazarus far away in the bosom of Abraham, enjoying that peace and rest and comfort. And he calls out to Abraham, verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Do you notice here, even in hell, this man treats Lazarus as though he was his servant. Get him to bring me some water! Again, figurative as language is used here, Lazarus will have no fingers uh, to take in the water. But it's clear that he he wants to order Lazarus about. He wants to bring him and and be relieved of his suffering. Abraham replies in verse 25, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. It's interesting, isn't it, that he addresses him as son. Which in a purely literal sense he is, isn't he? He's his great, 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 great grandson. But it almost emphasises here that he's not with the children of Abraham, is he? He's far off in hell. And this section is easy to misread, isn't it? I don't know if you uh, noticed as we read through verse 25, we've read it a few times now. We're not to take the meaning there as it talks about you've received your good things and he received his bad things. We're not to take it as meaning that all who live a life that's difficult will go to heaven and all who lead a prosperous life will go to hell. As we read a passage like this, we need to interpret scripture with scripture, Bible with Bible. This smacks in the face of all the rest of the Bible's teaching about how we get to heaven, doesn't it? Namely by trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation, not by good works, not by religious ceremonies, Jesus and his death in our place on the cross. So we can't add to that another category of if you suffer really badly in this life, then you'll get to heaven in the end. But it is linked with that life that follows that decision to trust Jesus. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, writes, They who have patiently endured the burden of the cross laid upon them, and have not been rebellious against the yoke and chastisements of God, but amidst uninterrupted sufferings have cherished the hope of a better life, have a rest laid up for them in heaven when the period of their warfare shall be terminated. 
On the contrary, the wicked despisers of God, who are wholly engrossed in the pleasures of the flesh, who by a sort of mental intoxication drown every feeling of piety, will experience immediately after death such torments as will efface their empty enjoyments. In other words, what he's saying there is that those who trust in Jesus and hope in him will suffer in this life, but will not suffer in the life to come. Those who hope in and live for their own enjoyment in this life, apart from God, will get it to whatever degree in this life, but they will not get it in the life to come. As Jesus says elsewhere in Luke, in Luke 9.24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Well, the rich man here is one who epitomised a life of selfish enjoyment. He did not love his neighbour as a believer truly would. You can see this in the way that he feasted and yet allowed Lazarus to, to starve at his gate. You see, the Bible commands us to care for the poor. And Lazarus, uh, the rich man, should have known that. So on the back of your notice sheets, you'll see there Leviticus 25, 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Or Deuteronomy 15, 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. But this rich man clearly has no love for the Bible, and therefore no love for the poor. And now the tables have been turned. He enjoyed himself and allowed others to suffer at his gate. Now he is suffering as others enjoy paradise at Abraham's side. As an aside, this makes a bit of a mockery, doesn't it, of the so-called prosperity gospel. It teaches that a Christian should have a pain-free life and a prosperous existence, leading a victorious life, having our reward in this life now. Well, that did not ring true for Lazarus, did it? Come to think of it, it didn't ring true for Jesus either, or indeed the Apostle Paul, who was beaten and shipwrecked and beheaded. It's no gospel at all if you think about it, it's just lies. If they wrote this parable, the rich man would have got to heaven, wouldn't he? Because he was the one that showed that he was blessed by God. And Lazarus would have gone to hell, obviously not a victorious believer. But we need to understand, don't we, that life for the Christian now is hard. We should expect that and not be deceived that all our sufferings are down to a lack of faith or because of disobedience. We look forward to that time when our suffering will be over, but that's not our lot in this life. It is our lot in the one to come. But there's another reason why Lazarus can't come and cool his tongue, as we think about this again, back in verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. There's no crossing between heaven and hell. One of the cruelest lies that you get these days is that eventually everybody will go to heaven. You get some people teaching that hell is temporary and heaven is everybody's final destination. But it's nonsense. Whether the chasm is literal or figurative, its meaning is clear, isn't it? Abraham tells us clearly, none may cross from there to us. It couldn't be clearer. You see, destinations when we die are fixed. There is no road between heaven and hell. 
There is no chance of reprieve. The decisions we make in this life are fixed in the next one. Eternity is a bit like a T-juncture. You know, you come up to it and you can go one way or you can go the other. And once you've turned, there's no turning back. The wonderful thing is that we can change lanes in this life by turning to Christ. But once we're dead, or Jesus returns, our choices become fixed. So our choices now are incredibly important, aren't they? We get one shot at this life. We can turn to Christ now and receive forgiveness and eternal life. But that offer only stands for this life. Once we are dead, the offer is withdrawn and we must face the consequences of our actions here on earth. The rich man sees this, but he sees it too late for himself. But he now wants his family to know. So our last section, five men and a shocking answer. Have a look at verses 27 to 31. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We learn here that the rich man has five brothers. He doesn't want them to experience the agony that he is facing. This is a clue that the story is happening in real time. They're still here on earth, they're still alive. He wants to warn them so that they won't end up like he is. It's a reminder that this man wasn't totally heartless. He does care for others, but it seems here only his own. He doesn't ask them to go prove it to the world, just to his family. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house to warn them. Again, he's still viewing Lazarus as someone he can just sort of send on errands uh, for himself. The sheer snobbery of this guy, he hasn't even got over it. And Abraham replies in verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. His reply is that they have the Old Testament to warn them. His answer is that they should listen to the Bible. God has given them the Bible to warn them of this very fate and to show them how to avoid it. It should lead them to faith in God and repentance from sin. But the rich man answers like so many others in our world, millions perhaps, verse 30. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to him from the dead, they will repent. Show them a sign, God, and they'll believe. The Bible's not enough, but if a dead man appeared to them, then they'd believe, surely. This is so often the answer, isn't it? Don't give me the Bible. Give me a miracle. Then I'll believe. You see, he wants his brothers to have a Scrooge experience. Do you know what I mean by that? Christmas Carol? Jacob Marley comes back to warn Scrooge of what is to come, so he'll turn his life round. Now, for Scrooge, that works after three other ghosts. But Abraham is not so optimistic. In fact, he out and out refutes what the rich man says. He knows that it's not about miracles, and here is the shocking answer. Verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they don't believe the Bible, then they won't believe, even if a miracle is done right before their eyes. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a bit wrong to me, doesn't it? You think, well, we expect people to believe because of miracles. But just because they say they will believe if they see a miracle doesn't mean they actually will. As if to hammer this home, the Bible gives us a story of a man whom Jesus raises from the dead. His very name is Lazarus, like the man here. How do people respond to a man so blatantly and demonstrably raised from the dead? Well, some believe, John 11, 45 is on the back of your notice sheets. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But others still disbelieve. In fact, it provokes them to plot for Jesus to be murdered. John eleven fifty three. So from that day on, after Lazarus had been raised, they made plans to put him to death. That's Jesus. And in fact, though, they even plot to kill Lazarus to hide the evidence. Even a miracle done right in front of somebody's face does not mean that they will believe. A man rising from the dead only hardens the Pharisees in their disbelief, in their opposition to Jesus. If you want a modern day example of this, think what Richard Dawkins would make of a man rising from the dead and appearing to him. He'd think it was a hallucination. He would think it was a magic trick. He would think of any number of explanations to explain away that experience, wouldn't he? So that he wouldn't have to change his view on God and on the Bible. Well, Abraham here is explaining that people in general are no different. Sure, they might not put it so starkly as someone like Richard Dawkins, but the same principle is in operation. People say that they want evidence, but most people really don't want evidence. They want to be left as they are. They don't want evidence because actually it would mean they'd have to change their life. It would mean they'd have to change how they're living. They say they want evidence because they don't believe that actually any will really be given to them. That's often the reason. So what has God given to them? He's given them Moses and the prophets. That's just a way of summing up the Old Testament, the Bible. If they don't believe the Bible, they won't believe even if someone rose from the dead. So what do we need to give people? If we want them to, to, to turn, to repent, to believe in Jesus... We need to give them Moses and the prophets. We need to give them the Bible. I'm really shocked when sometimes I hear Christians and even pastors say that we shouldn't expose non-believers to the Bible. We keep them away from the word, fearing that we'll offend them, and are surprised when they're not converted. The embarrassment, though, is often on our side, isn't it? We assume that they'll be offended, so we don't even bother going with the word. Now, I'm not talking about quoting random Bible verses to people or or standing on a street corner and shouting at people, uh, Bible passages. But we proclaim the gospel by teaching the Bible. It might be meeting up to read through a gospel with someone. There are great resources now to do that. It might be talking about someone's situation. um, Talking about something that we've read into someone's situation uh, from the Bible. Might be inviting them to church to hear the message. We love having people who are looking into Christianity with us on a Sunday. We so often do. So we shouldn't be scared of the Bible. It's there to convince us, to warn us, to lead us to repentance. To turn away from our sin and and put our faith in God. 
So we need to hear the word. Let it sink in. If our ears won't believers, uh, sorry, if our ears won't lead us to believe, then our eyes won't lead us to believe when we see things, will they? Even a person raised from the dead. So our priority in evangelism must be for people to hear the word in an appropriate and engaging way, whether that's in church or as an individual. That's what the rich man didn't understand in life, and he still doesn't understand in death. As an aside, this makes a mockery of the signs and wonders movement. They teach that the world today, what it needs is a big miraculous sign to believe. So they hold signs and wonders meetings where people perform miracles and healings for the crowd. Now I'm not saying for a second that God doesn't do miracles. Uh, I'm not saying for a second that God doesn't heal today. I believe he does. What I'm saying is that signs and wonders are not an effective evangelistic strategy. The Bible gives us, uh, what the Bible gives us is the word to preach. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. For the Jews demand signs. And the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we preach Christ crucified as we find him in scripture. Now of course as we read this we must remember there was one who did rise from the dead. We can't help but think this as we uh, read this. And even his well-attested resurrection has not convinced everybody, everybody has it. Now the evidence we find, of course, is in the Bible, so it's all bound up together uh, as we believe the word. But he would be the one, uh, the one who would rise from the dead, would be put to death by the very men listening to him speak. The very ones who cared nothing for the poor. The very ones who had ears but did not hear the word he was speaking. The very ones who are unhappy that undesirables like Lazarus were being welcomed by Jesus when they had rejected him. The very passage was supposed to lead them to repentance, wasn't it? To turn from being lovers of money to being lovers of God, shown by their love for their neighbour, especially the poor among them. So we mustn't let ourselves off the hook here. If our hearts are not stirred by the poor, then something terribly, there's something terribly wrong with our hearts. It's difficult, isn't it? I've done work with homeless people, Often drugs and alcohol can be a factor, can't they? Sometimes there's a choice to live on the streets. There's always the worry that they're secretly going home to a big mansion somewhere and a Mercedes Benz. We all have different opinions on how to help the poor and vulnerable. But whatever those opinions are, we need to do what we think is helpful. It's not an excuse to sort of say, well, I, I don't think doing this will help. We'll find something else to do. Whether it's giving money directly, whether it's giving money to homeless charities, uh, whether it's uh, giving food to the food bank, whether it's just giving a listening ear to hear their stories, even if they go all the way round again, like my granddad used to do. And an amazing thing happens as we do this, as we pour ourselves out into caring for the vulnerable, as we pour ourselves out into seeing the message of Christ crucified spread across the world, as we pour ourselves out into loving our brothers and sisters, Our lives take on purpose and meaning. Our lives go from pointless stories to purposeful stories. Stories that we can tell our grandchildren. Not so that we can show off like the Pharisees, but so that we can tell of what God has done through us. Part of his big story 
a story that points to him. So let's pray that God would help us live with purpose and meaning, pleasing him, not being like the Pharisees, but caring for one another. So let's pray. Father God, help us to heed the message of this passage. Father, help us to listen to your word. And Father, bring it to other people. And Father, pray that we ourselves would hear your word. Father, don't let us let ourselves off the hook with caring for the poor. But Father, help us pour ourselves out for the needy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.